Father in heaven, we thank you because you love us so much. You love us even though we don't deserve it. You love us when we are rebellious. And Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you too for your great uh, gifts of grace that you pour upon us. And we praise you for your word. And we realize, Father, too, that every time you speak to us through your word, something happens. So as we hear your word read to us, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that we might know you the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be reading uh, Daniel 5, chapter 5. Uh, there's a bookmark in the Blue Church Bible if you want to follow along and the words will be up on the screen. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have in insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me, 
to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank from wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parsin. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let's pray together, friends. Can we pray? Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us everything that we need. We thank you for this word and, Lord, uh, we, we thank you for um, the way in which you do give us what we need, not necessarily what we want to hear, but uh, we think especially today, Father, of this message of your sovereign rule over all kingdoms and also the, the message of judgment that goes with it. Uh, Father, we pray that you might humble our hearts before you to see your sovereign greatness, that we might cast ourselves on your great mercy to us in Christ. Humble us, we pray, but also, Father, we pray that 
today might be a day where we are lifted up and deepened in our faith and our confidence in you, the great King over all kings, who is bringing all things under the rule of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Please do that by your Spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you don't have to... um, You don't have to be a Christian for too long before you see how huge the claims of the Christian gospel are, right? Um, The Christian story, if if you're a newish Christian, or maybe if you can remember back when you became a Christian, the Christian story is massive, right? It it takes in everything. It's this huge story in the Bible, a true story about all things. The Bible encompasses everything. It encompasses all time, all space, Uh, In the face of human brokenness and sin, it proclaims good news for all people about the kingdom of God, about Jesus, this new the the king who died for his people and brought eternal life. So it's not too long before you you kind of get a sense for how big this claim is of the gospel. But then you start to notice something else as well. There's something else that you notice before too long. As big as these claims are, as huge as the claims of the Bible are, it can be really easy, can't it, to lose sight of them, to lose sight of how big it is. It's easy because there are so many other claims that are right in front of our noses. Uh, so many other claims that, can, that seem to compete with the claim of the gospel. There are so many other things that just seem more powerful, right? They seem more powerful. Uh, you might think of other kingdoms, not God's kingdom, but other kingdoms, other global powers that seem to run the world. Powerful countries, right? So um, you, you think of America, China, rogue states like North Korea. Maybe for you, you think of huge multinational com- companies like Google and Apple. I mean, it's pretty scary, isn't it, how much they know about you <laughs> without you even thinking about it? Huge, so much power. Um, You might think of terrorist groups like ISIS. Um, When you think about who's influencing the world today, who's who's calling the shots today, these and more you could probably think of. They easily come to mind, right? They easily come to your mind. Um, It's not just political or economic powers, though. There are lots of other kind of more subtle powers and things that are going on more subtle cultural forces that just seem unstoppable. Um, maybe they're even more distracting or dangerous because they're kind of under the, surf- under the surface. I was at a seminar this week that was thinking about um, how, trying to help Christians and Christian pastors particularly think about how to respond to what our society is saying about gender. Um, uh, the society says more and more increasingly that, that gender is a fluid thing. I know you might have come across this, that your gender is not connected to your biology, uh, it's, but it's something that you can choose. And so you, if you're familiar with Facebook, uh, they have over 50 different gender options that you can choose from. Well, uh, so this is a very significant um, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, social change or force or flow that's really taken root in our society. And the presenters at this seminar did a great job of modelling a really thoughtful, gracious response that shows real empathy and understanding to people who do struggle with, with what gets called gender dysphoria. A really gracious 
empathetic response they gave, but they also showed really helpfully how this new world of gender fluidity is really just the outworking of actually a much, much deeper kind of cultural forces that are at play uh, that in the end are opposed to the gospel. And it all has to do with the question of identity. Who am I? Who are you? Um, the gospel says that on your own, you're, you are, your identity is as part of the family of Adam. Part of the family of Adam, cut off from God. And the gospel invites you to receive a new identity, to be joined into the family of Christ. Uh, a new identity in him, adopted into his family by God's grace. Uh, but the current way of thinking about our identity says, who am I? It doesn't look outside you for who you are, in Adam or in Christ or any other way. The current way looks, well, it says, I am whoever and whatever I choose to be. There is no I out there. Whatever I feel that I am, whatever I say that I am, that is what I am. So the question of gender being fluid is really, they, I, I found it helpful, they brought out, there was just an outworking of this deeper assumption that our, our very identity is fluid. Uh, anyway, there's more to say there. Um, uh, much more to say there, but what, what, I, what I wanted to bring that out is it's not just the big powers out there, is it? Like the big kind of global forces that are at play. There's other things that can just seem unstoppable. Cultural forces, um, ways of thinking that take deep root in a society. Whether it's ISIS or identity theories, it can feel like there's a clash of kingdoms and one where the kingdom of God seems to be losing. Well, I want to suggest this morning that this clash of kingdoms is nothing new. It's nothing new. Uh, it's actually a, the normal, a normal kind of experience for people who live in God's kingdom. And it would, have just pressed, it would have pressed just as heavily on Daniel and his friends two and a half thousand years ago in Babylon as it does for us today. Um, this, this struggle, it, it, this struggle, this clash of kingdoms, it really, and we've seen this in different ways all the way through the book so far, it really drives Daniel, it drives this book of Daniel forward. Um, particularly uh, last week we kind of saw this big picture of, the, of chapters 2 to 7 and how they all hang together. Um, chapters 2 to 7 kind of form a bit of a unit um, and uh, right in the middle of that unit is chapters 4 and 5. Um, so anyway, chapter 4 and 5, uh, they're right in the middle of this and, and they kind of go together, right? This, this, and we saw last week there's a phrase that gets repeated through chapters 4 and 5, this phrase, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the, on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Um, so these two chapters, they show this, this clash of kingdoms, uh, but they zone in on two kings. Um, and what happens when the most powerful person on earth, right? We saw this last week if you were here for chapter 4. What happens when the most powerful person on earth clashes with the Most High God, the King of Kings? And if you're here last week, you would have seen how we looked at King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, one of the greatest, most powerful people in the history of the world. Uh, he lived his life in cruelty and wickedness. Uh, he had brought whole nations under his iron rule, his iron fist, this guy. And we saw this incredible account of how that most powerful person in the world was brought low. 
Uh, the guy who would stand up on his buildings and look down on everyone else um, instead was brought low himself. And he gets restored, if you remember the story. He gets restored when, he, instead of looking down on everyone else, he looks up and he recognises the reality of the Most High God who sits over all, th- all kings and all kingdoms. It's this incredible story of repentance, of trust and faith in God. But this chapter, you notice as we go through, right, that this chapter has a very different ending to chapter 4. Here's a man in the same position as Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, it's kind of in the same sort of position. But when he comes up against the rock of the, the king of kings, when he comes up against God and God's kingdom, he doesn't humble himself. He isn't restored. He faces God's judgment and he is brought to nothing. Um, so uh, we find out in the first few verses, right, there's this guy, King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, and you get a glimpse of his character in the opening verses. You find out later he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or possibly the grandson, or they use the, the, the word kind of to mean a few different things. So it, there's some um, uncertainty about that. But he's related to Nebuchadnezzar. He's the next king in Babylon. He's throwing this huge party. All the nobles are there. You can see uh, a, thousand, a thousand of the nobles, and all of Belshazzar's um, wives and concubines are there too. And they're all getting drunk, right? It's this massive, huge-scale party. Um, Then Belshazzar has this bright idea. The kingdom of Babylon, and we've seen this through, well, you read this in the history of the Old Testament, we've seen this in Daniel, the kingdom of Babylon was unstoppable. It had crushed kingdoms uh, and every kingdom, and therefore every god that stood in its way, it thought it had crushed so Belshazzar thinks, why not take the chance to boast in their victories, to make a mockery of these nations? So, uh, especially, you know, not just to make a mockery of their nations, but of their gods as well, especially those Israelites from Jerusalem. They had this fantastic temple, but their god was as weak as all the others, so thought Belshazzar. So let's bring out the gold and silver cups from his temple and let's use them in our huge party. Let's use them to get drunk with. Um, but as you read on in verse 4, Belshazzar's pride doesn't stop there. His mockery of the God of Israel. They drink, they don't just use the goblets from the temple. You notice what they're doing? As they're drinking, they're, sing, they're, they're singing the praise of the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. He's not just mocking the God of Israel. He's going even further, isn't he? He's sort of taking the opportunity to praise these false gods, these idols. He's worshipping created things rather than the creator. Well, and at that moment, as this drunken praise of, of the idols is going out of his mouth, right at that moment, all of a sudden... The hand appears. <laughs> All of a sudden, his fingers come out of nowhere, the fingers from a human hand, and they write on the wall, on the plaster of the wall. And just like that, you notice, in, in a blink of an eye, Belshazzar goes from this proud, unstoppable king of Babylon, the greatest city in the world, throwing the biggest party you've ever seen. Just like that, he goes from that, in the blink of an eye, to this simpering wreck. He goes white as a sheet, his legs give way. 
Uh, and then you go, he does what Nebuchadnezzar did. If you remember on the other chapters, Nebuchadnezzar, his instinct is to call in his wise men. They're never really much help. His enchanters, astrologers and diviners, they're, they're just as ignorant and powerless here in this chapter as every other time that they've been hauled out before the king. They can't help out. Um, even with this massive bribe, you notice the bribe he gives them, promoted to the third highest in the realm, given a robe of purple, which would have been extremely expensive, this gold chain. Even with this huge bribe, they can't make out what this hand has written on the wall. And you can sort of see uh, like the terror in King Belshazzar's face, right? What is going on? I mean, how, you know, uh, there was no um, wooden pole and rope hanging <laughs> to hold the hand up. How would you feel? This hand suddenly appears and writes on the wall, right in the middle of your party. But all is not lost. We're told in verse 10, the queen hears this noise and comes in. She's probably the queen mother, um, which is why she's not in the party herself. She's probably, uh, that's, that's who they think she is. Uh, and it's also why she knows someone who can help out. Uh, she's older. She's, she's lived through different kingdoms. She's probably the queen mother. And she says to Belshazzar, take a breath, son. Don't worry. Uh, and then in verse 11, she says this. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. Now, I think this is fascinating, right? Um, if you've read up to this point in Daniel, Daniel has been promoted to pretty much the highest that you, anyone could go in the kingdom. He's the king's right-hand man. And after chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's humbling and Dan Daniel was the one who urged him to repent. Um, you get the sense that he and, he and Nebuchadnezzar, are, he's kind of Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. Uh, he's the chief of his wise men. But then you just get to Belshazzar, then maybe the next king along. Uh, and he's all but forgotten, Daniel. And it takes the queen mother to bring him back out from wherever he's kind of hiding, not hiding away, wherever he is, wherever he's living. And so Daniel gets hauled up before this king. He gets the same spiel given to him, the same bribe offered to him. Tell me what this writing means. You can see Belshazzar getting absolutely, you know, more and more worked up. He needs to know what it means. Tell me and you'll have unbelievable wealth and power. Um, and Daniel's response in verse 17, I think, is pretty striking. It really contrasts, if you're here last week, remember how Daniel responded to Nebuchadnezzar? He, he didn't want Nebuchadnezzar to face what was coming and he urged him to repent. Nebuchadnezzar didn't lower himself, didn't humble himself. But Daniel wanted him to repent. But here, not here. You don't get that here. He answers the king in verse 17 and it's really blunt. He basically says, keep your gifts. I don't want them. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what it means. And here's uh, something even, uh, again, I think something really interesting what's going on here as you keep reading. Uh, you kind of expect at that point Daniel to say, here's what it means, O king. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. 
Um, but you see what he does? He doesn't actually say, doesn't tell the king straight away what it means. He goes into this long story, this long speech. Uh, he knows that this, the hand might have come out of thin air, but this, this writing didn't. You know, this judgment on Nebuchadnezzar hasn't just appeared from nowhere. It has a reason behind it. There's a reason for it. It's not some random accident. It, it is from the Most High God. And Daniel goes back to Belshazzar's father, or maybe his grandfather. Um, Belshazzar would have known this story. Let's read from verse 18. So, uh, in verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar had sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. You can see there. Uh, but Daniel says, you notice, um, or back in verse 18, do you notice what Daniel says? The Most High God gave your father these things. It was given to him. And we saw this last week. The pride of Nebuchadnezzar made him see everything as his achievement. Whereas God humbled him to see everything as God's gift to him, to be received with thanks and used for God's glory, not for his own. That was what God did to him. He, he was, he, it made him proud in verse 20. His, when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. All this stuff was just taken away like that. We saw that last week. He was driven away from people. Uh, and given the mind of an animal, he lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. And Nebuchadnezzar did acknowledge that in the end. He did look up and he did humble himself. And Daniel says... That warning should have been enough for Belshazzar. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar should have been enough for this new king. He should have known to humble himself. And he goes on in verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's the reason this message was sent. He should have known. He should have known. But he didn't. He didn't respond with the humility that his father did, that Nebuchadnezzar did. Well, then you get the sentence at the end of the chapter from verse 25 on, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, these words, mene, mene, tekel, parson, that were written on the, on the wall, they all have to do with money. It's kind of like someone's counting out coins. And, and Daniel basically says, you, O king, you have, this is what God is saying to you. You have been numbered you have been weighed, you have been judged, and you have come up wanting. Your days are up, your kingdom's going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. It's a pretty straightforward message on one level. Your time's up, O king. How should Belshazzar respond to this? If he'd learned anything from Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, I think this is really fascinating. Um, Surely he would fall on his knees and 
cry out and re- try and repent and ask Daniel to pray for him. Do you see how he responds? It doesn't, this message doesn't seem to affect him at all. Even though Daniel doesn't want it, he's still, sort of you can see him bringing Daniel over and wrapping the, ro- the robe around him, giving him his chain and sending him off to be the third highest in the kingdom. Maybe he thinks he's buying this God off, you know. <laughs> if he treats his messenger well enough, gives him enough gold, maybe. But it doesn't seem to affect him much at all. And then there's this really abrupt, chilling ending at the end, verse 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. It's incredible, isn't it? This guy, in the height of his power, in the blink of an eye, he's cut off. Um, other sources, this is pretty fascinating, I think, other sources tell us that the, these guys, the Medes and the Persians, the army uh, cut off the great river that ran through the city of Babylon. They cut it off upstream. So they snuck in at night time uh, where the water would be, would be going through. Otherwise, there was no way into this great city of Babylon. They snuck in that very night. So as Belshazzar is there having this party, even at that moment, there's probably soldiers from the Medes and Persians sneaking into Babylon. And it was a pretty simple takeover. All in one night. And you read at the end of the chapter, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, how, what do we make of all this, friends? This, um, it's, I mean, you know, another pretty incredible story from um, this book. Uh, a, a, a true story, an account of these things that really did happen. Um, we saw last week this struggle of one man's power and pride against the Most High God. Here last week we had, the, we had an illustration in the kids' talk of God being lifted up uh, over all other powers. And it was this story of you, you just can't compete with this God. And it was a message actually of great comfort, I think, last week. You had Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who had done incredibly wicked things, who had lived his whole life in opposition to God, who had done incredibly wicked things, Uh, if he can be humbled and brought to trust in the one true God, then whoever you are, whatever wicked things you've done, however proud you are, God can take anyone into his plans. But this chapter, so last week we kind of focused on the individual character of Nebuchadnezzar, right? But this chapter brings out this bigger, more global reality, this clash of kingdoms, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of, on the earth, over any institution of power, any movement, right? Any forces that seem to you today to be so overwhelming and unstoppable. God is sovereign over them all. It doesn't mean that he approves of what they do. He's not the author of evil. But they won't defeat him. His plans and his purposes are unstoppable and they will last. This is ultimately a passage, though, about God's judgment on all who would oppose him, on all who would not humble themselves before him. 
we can be reluctant, can't we, at times to talk about God's judgment? Um, you can understand why. But if we're faithful to the Bible, if, if we see that Jesus himself talks about judgment more than just about any other topic, we can't get around it. And I want to suggest that we shouldn't want to get around it. We shouldn't want to get around it. I want to encourage us to retune our hearts so that we long for what God longs for, so that we love what he loves, and so that we see that God's judgment, God's judgment is first and foremost good news. His judgment is first and foremost good news. It means the end of everything that is evil, everything that has messed up this world. God's judgment means the end of pain and suffering and sickness and mourning and death itself. That's what God's judgment means primarily. The great dilemma of the Bible is for God to wipe out all of that, how could he do that and not wipe out wicked people too? How could he do that without wiping out everyone else? All of us who have in ourselves, in Adam, rebelled against God. It is in the wonder of the gospel that this dilemma is solved, friends. That God can be both just, the just judge, and the one who justifies those who trust in Jesus. The one who justifies them. His fierce judgment on our sin has already fallen if you are trusting in Jesus. It has already fallen on him, on his on the Son of God who takes it in our place. That is good news. Uh, not only will God set things right, he'll set you right. And he has begun to do that in Christ through Jesus. But it is sobering news too, right, for those who haven't trusted Christ. It is news that if, if we heard it rightly, would make us pale and tremble. Uh, if that is you, friends, if you have not found a safe space from this judgment of God. Daniel 4 and 5 are both a warning to you and an invitation. Don't continue in pride towards God. You cannot win. But Jesus makes it possible to be restored to God. He does. Friends, humble yourself today and receive what he offers. But this isn't just a personal reality. We started at the start by... Um, looking at these huge global realities, right? These forces that just seem so strong, that seem unstoppable. This chapter would have been, well, for the, for the exiles who were in Babylon two and a half thousand years ago reading this chapter, it would have been a huge encouragement for them. Despite what's going on here and now, no matter what powers are facing you, no matter who's getting drunk on the temple's cups, no matter who is worshipping the, the false idols, no matter who, no matter what's going on, God is still in charge. He's still working his purposes out. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There is another time that Babylon gets mentioned in the Bible. Uh, right at the end of the Bible, actually, in the book of Revelation. The Revelation is this kind of book that in apocalyptic language, this rich apocalyptic language, tells the end ahead of time. Um, it, speaks, it speaks, this book speaks of Babylon the Great, 
Now, by the time Revelation was written, Babylon was no longer a kingdom, but it uses this image of Babylon the Great. It uses it as a symbol for human pride and power, for all human pride and power that rejects God and his good and loving rule. Babylon looked so powerful, so promising, so luxurious, promises so much, but it cannot deliver. It is under the judgment of God. And you get this scene in Revelation chapter 18. You can read it more later on. Get this scene of people crying out over the fall of Babylon. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. In one hour, just like Belshazzar's doom was come and Babylon, this great kingdom, was just replaced with another kingdom, all under God's rule and plan and purposes. In one hour, Babylon the Great, the ultimate Babylon, all human pride and opposition to God, is done away with. And once this great city falls, the writer of this book of Revelation writes in chapter 19 that he hears the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So is it a clash of kingdoms? Well, not ultimately. That is the reality, this coming reality, God's coming unstoppable kingdom. And for those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, for those who are trusting in Christ, that is a day of great hope and joy, a day to long for, and a day to point others to, a day to point others to, and to see others come into that same eternal life-giving kingdom where there will be no more mourning or crying or sickness or pain, but all things will be made new under the lordship of God's great King, of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at sobering things today, um, but Father, give us your heart. Help us to love what you love and to yearn for what you yearn for. Help us to see your judgment as fundamentally a good, a wonderful, liberating thing. We thank you for your promise of making all things new, of bringing an end to all that's evil. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on that coming day. Father, keep us from pride. Keep us from the kind of pride of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you for um, the example last week of Nebuchadnezzar and the hope that it gives for all people to come to know you and humble themselves before you. But we do want to hear the warning too of this chapter. So Father, we pray, we pray that you might, Lord, Uh, that that warning might ring truly out from us, from our own hearts and our own lives. Uh, But it might come with the wonderful and overwhelming and abounding hope of the gospel. Uh, Thank you so much, Father, for the good news of Jesus, that he gives us a safe space from your judgment. He covers us in his blood, the blood of the Lamb, um, so that we can be a part of your kingdom. We can be forgiven and given new life through him grafted into his family. We thank you for the wonderful hope that gives. Please help us, we pray, to live in the line of that. We pray especially for those who might feel overwhelmed by things in this, uh, forces of this world that just seem more powerful than your kingdom. Please comfort us and help us to know the reality of your sovereign power over all kingdoms on earth.
Uh, help us, Father, to live for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.